Morning. It's good to see you. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And I, uh, on occasion, enjoy walking down the hallway on a Sunday morning, my cup of coffee. JD's always faithful to have some apple fritters out there. I picked one up and I took a bite out of it. One of the other guys said, I guess, hope that'll make your sermon a little sweeter. I said, I'm in Romans chapter 2, man. He's spending all his time making sure everybody knows you're going to get judged. But I will try to sweeten it up a little bit with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Paul's heading toward. That's what he wants to do. He wants them to see their desperate need for the gospel. And my prayer is that that's what we'll see this morning. Our desperate need for the gospel of Christ, for the gospel to save us, and for us to keep submitting ourselves to the will of God constantly. You know, throughout the years, I've done some witnessing, personal witnessing, whether it be in Restaurants, whether it be with my family, uh, whether it be on the streets, whether it be in a foreign country or right here in the United States, I've spent my time witnessing and I've heard some doozies as to why somebody believes they will stand before God one day justified. One comes to mind. Well, my grandfather, he was a Baptist preacher. That's about as deep as it got. So I went on and shared the gospel. Or, you know what? I've been in church my whole life. You know, I read my Bible every day. I pray two or three times a day. I'm thankful None of these things will suffice you standing before God one day. God will not accept them as justification for your sin. The clear understanding found in this text, along with what has come before, is that all will be judged by God according to their works. Everyone. Everyone. Paul is making that very, very clear. He began over in chapter 1, verse 18, speaking of that the wrath of God has been revealed And Gentiles and mankind, although God made it evident that He is, have rejected the righteousness of God. And they've rejected it in various ways. And so God gave them over. Paul speaking in such a way, writing in such a way, the Jews are probably 
kind of got their chest poked out and a little puffed up, saying, yeah, he's talking about all those Gentiles, those nasty Gentiles. And then he comes to chapter 2, and he lets the Jew know, I want you to know something. You shake your head at them, but you do the same thing. You're without excuse. They have no excuse, but neither do you. Let me explain why. And he goes and he begins to unpack, and he's still unpacking, and he's going to still be unpacking next week in our sermon of how the Jews can't strut in any way and say, but we're God's people. He's laying out, and he comes to, in chapter 3 later on, there's no one who is righteous. There's no one who is justified before God. There is no one who can justify themselves in the things that they do. And God will say, yeah, come on in. At the judgment. Not going to happen. Well, I live a good moral life. Well, good for you. I'm sure that works out well. Most people who live a good moral life tend to get a good education, get good jobs, and do good things in their community. But it will serve you none whatsoever when you stand before the living God. It's important to understand that Paul here is not speaking to us about how one is justified. He is speaking about the standard by which all will be judged. Justification, of course, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The same standard is the measure, if you will. None of us measure up. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what he's doing is making sure that it's understood. There's no one who is righteous. No one is going to be justified by the works that they do, he says in chapter 3, verse 20. So one thing that Paul's doing in this particular section is he's setting out an argument against the Jews who would argue that they are not in the same category as the Gentiles who do not have the law, who are not the people of God. Their argument would be, we have the law and we know the law, whereas the Gentiles do not. Of course, of course, we will have a special rendering on the basis of our privilege and nationality. No, you will not, Paul say. So I want to kind of show that argument here, that that's what Paul is arguing and I want to do it in three steps with some application in the end. The first point I want to make is that everyone will be judged by the law. Secondly, everyone has a law that reveals God's moral standards. 
Say, well, the Jews have the law, but the Gentiles don't have the law. Yeah, this says they do. And then the last point, that day of judgment will come. That day of judgment will come. First of all, everyone will be judged by the law. Verses 11 through 13, for God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. First of all, I want us to notice that it says here about God that he shows no partiality. Uh, This is a word they kind of had to make up, if you will. Uh, It's a a compound word that literally means uh, to receive face, okay? To receive face. Face. God will not render judgment based on how men often re- render judgment by someone's appearance or someone's actions or in, in such a way that, that, well, you know what, I see, you, you, didn't, have, you didn't have all the, the things that you needed in this life. God's not going to render judgment based on how we render judgment. God doesn't look at the outward appearances. God is not going to uh, consider the circumstances you have been under in this life. He's not concerned about your race, your nationality, your heritage, your wealth, your poverty, or physical condition when it comes to judgment. None of those things are factors that he takes into consideration. He takes the law that he has handed down, the law that describes his character, the law uh, that is his and out of him, and that's the only measure. And none of us fulfill it. Of course, let me go ahead and say, of course, Christ does. Christ has fulfilled that law. I'll say that a couple of more times as we go through. But God doesn't show partiality. Hey, Jews, yeah, God showed you himself. He gave you his law. He called you out. You are a special people to him. But your Judaism and your practices are not what I'm going to look at on the day of judgment. I like how Amos points out, you know, some of y'all, y'all look forward to the day of judgment like it's going to be a good thing, but y'all need to understand it isn't going to be a good thing for you. Y'all don't measure rightly. What do you point to? What they do. He's letting the Jews know, yeah, you have all these things. But that's going to do you no good before the God of all things. It says here, for all who have sinned without the law, that's a particular people. 
We're, we're speaking of Gentiles. We're speaking of everyone who is not a Jew. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will what? Be judged by the law. Gentiles are those without the law. Only Israel received the law of Moses. All other nations besides Israel uh, brushed up against it in their dealings with the people of God, but they never had the full revelation of the things of God. even though they were not privileged to have received the special revelation uh, that God gave them of himself and his ways, it says here that Gentiles will perish. They will be condemned. Rick, can you list out who the Gentiles are? All of y'all. Okay? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Let me just go ahead and clarify that. All of us are Gentiles. And so they will perish. They don't have the law. It says here those under the law, they are clearly Jews. They hold this, that they are under the law. They hold that they are Jewish, that they are the people of God. They hold that like it's a badge of honor. And in their arrogance, they are judged. It says here that they have heard the law. Look what it says, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. They are hearers of the word. They have heard the word of God. I mean, uh, the people in the generation that came out of Egypt, I mean, they verbally heard it resounding off the Mount Sinai. And they went and hid and said, Hey, Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. He talked to you, you talked to us. But man, don't let, us, don't let us have to hear that again. I mean, they heard. But also continuing after that, and as Israel uh, formed up as a nation and took the land and established uh, the, the tabernacle, and uh, even during the exile and after the exile, uh, teaching took place in the synagogues. And Paul's writing to a people who have been studying in the synagogues for generations. This word here is not merely the audible sound of someone reading the Scriptures. It's not merely the sense of hearing. What this is, is an educational term. Uh, some are auditory learners. And back here, everybody was an auditory learner. Because that's what they would do. They would go to synagogue and they would hear the scripture read. And that's how they learned the history of Israel. That's how they learned the word of God. 
These aren't merely people who have the word and have heard the word. These are people that have learned the word and embedded it in themselves where they know it by rote. And here it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Anybody can hear the word read. But the doers of the law will be justified. Paul's point in this is that hearing has done you no benefit. Having access to the Word of God, having access to the law, having knowledge of what it says and knowledge of what it means does you no benefit. When it comes to the judgment of God. If you only hear it. And do not do it. Your hearing. Is futility. Paul's not taking it easy on his Jewish brothers here. He's reminding them of their privilege and also reminding them of how they've squandered it. The implication here is that, and and history proves this out, that the Jews indeed did not do the law and therefore are not and cannot be justified by it. No one is guiltless. No one is justified by the law. No one, not hearers who only know the law but don't do it, nor those who do not have the law but do the law, but not consistently. We'll look at that in the next point, but I want to point out something, how Paul uses the word perish in regard to the Gentiles. And he uses the word judged in regard to the Jews. The change from perish to judge is suggested by the law. Those who have the law. The point is that both will be condemned. One by the law. And one by them not doing what they do know. They've all, they will be condemned. Why? Both have sinned. 
Jew and Gentile alike. Both have missed the mark. Both have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us fit that category. I mean, this is what Paul's driving at. This is what Paul's here. Let me show you this, Jews. Your thought that you can boast in the arrogance of being a Jew, I want to make sure that you know that's not true. You say that the Gentiles don't have a law, but let me show you that they do. Because everyone has a law that reveals God's moral standards. Everyone. Whether Jew or Gentile. Verse 19 of chapter 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And now we see in verse 14, for when Gentiles, that for, by the way, in verse 13 and uh, verse 14, reconnect with verse 12. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, he's already established that in verse 12, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Although the Jews have the written code of God on tablets of stone. Y'all remember that story? They have the written code of God on tablets of stone and do not do it. The Gentiles have a written code on their heart, it says. Verse 15 further explains verse 14. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting, conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Gentiles can do what is right by nature. They can not murder. And they can not steal. They can not commit adultery. They can be faithful to a wife or to a husband for all their life. They can walk by a moral code and do. There are a lot of Gentiles, a lot of non-Jews that live incredibly moral lives. It says here that they can do Right by nature. More than that, they can follow a written code that is on their hearts. We know what is right and wrong because of God's image and imprint of Himself on all mankind. He's put that in us. How did 
Cain know that he had done wrong? Do you think it was only when God said, where's your brother? No, that anger and rage rose up in him and he killed his brother. And now he's trying to hide the fact from God. Am I my brother's keeper? It wasn't merely the confrontation. He knew that life had been taken. And he knew that it was wrong. Gentiles can do what is right by nature. It says here that they are a law, it says. A law to themselves. What does that mean? I take it to mean this. That what is written on their hearts is sufficient to make them accountable to God. What is written on the heart of every man, every woman, is sufficient to make them accountable to God. It says here they do what the law requires, but they don't do it consistently. What does that mean? They're lawbreakers. You see, they have the law on tablets of stone. The Jews do. All mankind, the law written on their hearts. And it doesn't matter what form it comes in, I want you to know. What we're going to do is break it. That's what all of us do. We all break it. We all break the law of God. Paul points to three things that give evidence of this, that it's sufficient for them to be held accountable to God. The first thing is their conduct. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They do what is right. That points to the sufficiency of the law written on their heart, making them accountable to God. The second thing is their conscience. It says, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their Conscience also bears witness. You see, our conscience is affected by this written code on our hearts to where we feel bad for doing wrong. Where we know that we have sinned against something. And if you've sinned against your own conscience, you've sinned against the living God. The third evidence 
that says that they are accountable to God is their thoughts. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They're able to understand to the point where they have knowledge of wrongdoing. And those thoughts either excuse or accuse. And it says there on that day. In other words, these things are sufficient to use against someone on the day of judgment. You say, but Rick, Isn't that a different law? Huh. No. Both the law written on the hearts of man and the law written on tablets of stone find their basis and have one source. And that is the God who wrote them. None of us will be excused on the day of judgment. None of us can go to that day counting on God to consider our circumstances of how hard life was or what advantages that we didn't have. None of us will be able to go before God and say, but look at the things, the unjust things that were done to me. Look at the hurt that I had in my life. Take this into consideration, oh God. No. No. He won't. But Lord, I was fatherless. Lord, I spent most of my life depressed. Lord, my father beat me to a pulp when I was a kid. None of that will help me justify you. Because my word is sufficient. And my grace is sufficient. It says there on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. According to my gospel. There's the word of God again. Did you believe it and repent? Or did you reject it 
and go on living as you wish. Same code, same message. On that day when according to my gospel, what's that gospel do? On that day according to my gospel, this gospel that I preach speaks of a day of judgment. The secrets, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. <laughs> you may have secrets, but God knows them. And he will judge everyone. All will be judged on the basis of the written law of God, whether written on stone, paper, or heart. But that judgment will be without partiality. He will judge according to the works that you have done. I'm looking forward to getting to chapter 5. Therefore, we have peace with God. I don't have to get to chapter 5 to have peace with God, by the way. You don't either. Not if you're in Christ. Not if you've trusted Him. Not if you've repented of your sin. And if that's true of you today, it will be true of you on that day of judgment. But you will never justify yourself before God according to your works or according to your circumstances. God is the judge and God is the standard bearer. All of us, all of us come in this way. Let me give you three things here at the end. The gist of application. First thing is this. Flowing out of this, just kind of thinking, how do I apply this? Because I'm doing a lot of explaining of the text more than anything right now. First thing is this. Christian discipline will not justify you. We push the Christian disciplines here. We've got, we've got uh, Bible intake guides out here for you to have a Bible reading plan. It has our fighter verse in it every week. It has our catechism in it for every week. It has the hymn of the month in it. It has all these things. And I mean, we put those things out, and I love, I love you people. I do. I love you. You know why? Because we put those out and they disappeared. That's good. You have no idea how much my heart loves that they disappeared. That you would be able to take that and have a plan for reading the Word of God. I love that. I love that so many of our people, I hear conversations in the hallway. And they're talking about what they read, both of them read, the same day out of Genesis or Exodus. We can have a conversation about our daily reading just as we bump into each other. 
love that. That means that our uh, our hearts are being fed with the same words to pray. You realize that? Because the Word of God is our source for praying. It feeds our minds and convicts our hearts. It fills our souls and often causes the same praise to come from my lips that would come from someone else's lips because they're being fed by the same word. All of our reading, all of our memorizing, all of our writing and journaling, all of our fasting, Now, that's a word you don't hear much in Baptist churches, right? None of it will justify you before God. None of it. God, I got that Bible intake book every every year. Went through it, checked off all the boxes. It will not justify you. Please do it. But don't do it thinking that God will be pleased on this day of judgment. Because you did that. The Jews were, hey, we're hearers of the word. Good for you. makes no difference when it comes to judgment. Reading the Word, memorizing the Word, praying, all these things, they do make a difference in our sanctification. They do make a difference in people hearing the Word and being saved. But they are not a work that will be before God and He'll go, you're in. Second. Privilege is not a redeemer. Privilege is not a redeemer. That was the mindset of the Jews. We're Jews. Paul's taking that argument to pieces all through Romans. Your Judaism does not redeem you. Your privilege, and they were privileged. They were the only ones who had the word. They were the only ones that God had made himself known, to whom God had made himself known. They were the only ones that had the revelation that God had given up to that point. No one else had it. People had glimpses of it, like Rahab. Forty years later, she said, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. Just a glimmer of it caused her to hide the spies. Privilege is not a redeemer. 
Do you realize how privileged you are? That you live in a nation that says, you know what? You worship freely. You Christians, you worship freely. You Muslims, you worship freely. All of you, y'all worship freely. Hallelujah! I've been in nations where that ain't the case. How many Bibles do you have stacked up at your house? And how often during the week do you pull it down? Most of you have carpet in your house. We kind of go to the wood laminate stage. You know, that's where we are nowadays. But a nice soft carpet to put your knees on to pray. Been to places where they don't have the Word of God to read. Very few. How easily we squander the privilege we have. The least privileged in the United States of America is more privileged than the majority of people who live on the face of this earth. And I want you to know, privilege does not redeem. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher, so what? Been going to church my whole life, who cares? That does you no good in the judgment. I've had all these resources all my life, good for you, what'd you do with them? How did it change the way you live? Privilege is not a redeemer. You doing good and being able to do good because of your wealth will not redeem you. Not one offering you give will cause God to give you a good judgment on that day. Lastly, we will be judged. Sounds like you can just go, I'm going to consider that sitting here in this place. I'm going to consider that you said that you, I will be judged. I'm going to take time and think about that. You don't need to think about it. It's a matter of fact. You don't need to consider whether that is right or wrong. The Bible states it over and over again. Well, let me pray about that, Rick, and see whether determine whether that's true. You don't have to pray about it. It's absolute. And it's either going to go well for you or it's not. And that's only going to be because you discover what Paul is trying to let everyone know, both Jew and Gentile. You are rotten to the core apart from Jesus Christ. You will not be justified before God in your own standing and merit. It will not happen. It cannot happen. God will not, will not justify you 
on any basis other than the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang a hymn this morning, Rock of Ages. I love those. I, I love these old ancient hymns, these older hymns, because they're so full of theology. May I pick apart verse 3 of Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. Because it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I fly, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The first two lines state the whole of his meaning. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lines 3, 4, and 5 represent nothing in my hand I bring. It's represented like this. Listen to it. Listen to it. Don't just sing it. I love singing. I do. I'm not great at it, but I love it. If I was not up here and I was back there, I'd be louder than all of you. Okay? You'd be turning around going, what is that? You know? I love it. Don't just sing it. Think about it. The songs are not just about singing. They're about teaching. Listen. Nothing in my hand I bring. Naked come to thee for dress. This is what Paul's saying. I come exposed and ashamed. I got nothing covering me. It says right there that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I come completely exposed. Lord, clothe me. That's what it's saying. Naked. Come to thee for dress. Nothing in my hand I bring. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. I'm powerless. I'm clueless. I'm ignorant. I'm foolish. I've got nothing. But I heard the message of this cross. And I'm coming to you just helpless. I got nothing. And while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Nothing in my hand I bring. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Foul, not F-O-W-L. F-O-U-L. Not speaking of the penalties of our life, but speaking of the stench of our life. The rot of our life. The filth of who we are. Paul saying, no one has an excuse. And this is how you come. You come exposed and ashamed, shameful, nothing. 
Nothing to be proud of. Nothing to be arrogant about. You come powerless. You come foolish. You come stinking before God. And I come simply to that cross to cling. Which is only represented in one other line. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me. Cleanse me. Get the stench off of me, O oh God. Fill my heart and my mind with truth. Clothe me with your righteousness. And when that happens in our life, I mean, that's what Paul said, you're all guilty. And this is how guilty you are. And here's the only, only work that will matter on that day. It's the work of Jesus Christ. That work. Your works are going to be judged. And he, Jesus, is going to be in our stead. What did he do? He bore our sins. By his stripes, we're healed. God's righteous judgment is on everyone. And the only answer to it is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our hope, our friend. Father, we want to thank you for your plan to redeem us from the pits of hell. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to strive in doing good. Father, that as Christians, we would not be apathetic and we would not be complacent, but God, that we would every day strive to be like Jesus Christ as those who have been bought by his precious blood. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to make known the guiltiness of all men. But that we would make that known with grace and love. And Father, that your gospel would be, we would faithfully put it forward in our community and around the world. That people would believe and be saved, and be made new in you. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.